Hello, and welcome to the NAB Security Podcast. I'm Tara for Enterprise Security, and this series has been created to discuss security issues that might impact you, our customers. We speak with experts on a range of security topics to share environmental insights and tips on how you can keep yourself, your family, and your business safe. Today's security topic is fraud and scams. Globally, the fraud and scam environment is becoming increasingly hostile and Australia is in no way immune. At NAB, security relating to the prevention, detection and remediation of fraud and scams is a top priority to ensure the security of our customers and the community safe from these threats. To talk to us more, I'm joined today by NAB's Executive of Group Investigations and Fraud, Chris Sheehan. Chris, thanks for joining me today. Hey, Tara, thanks for, um, thanks for giving me the opportunity. I'm, I'm really looking forward to having a, a bit of a conversation. Yeah, me too, me too. I think you've got a lot to share around uh, fraud uh, from an environmental perspective um, and what's happening for NAB and our customers. Before we jump into that, I'm really interested just to get a bit of a, a better understanding about you. And I'd love if you could just share with me your career path before joining NAB. Yeah, um, no problem at all. So I've, I've been with NAB now for nearly three years and actually thinking about that, that time has gone really, really quickly. Um, but prior to that, I was with uh, a member of the Australian Federal Police for 28 years. I, uh, I started in the uh, AFP as a uniformed police officer in Canberra, just performing all of the normal general duties, police, uh, police functions that a uniformed police officer uh, would perform anywhere in the country. Um, I did that for a few years and then became a detective working on all different types of uh, criminal activity from homicides and armed robberies uh, and, and sexual assaults through the home burglaries and stolen motor vehicles, assaults and all that sort of thing. And then about, a, about 10 years into my career, I decided that I wanted to move to a different part of the AFP, a part of the AFP that operates nationally focused on organised crime. And so I transferred from Canberra up to Sydney and spent the next few years working in the uh, AFP in Sydney, all with the, uh, what was then the National Crime Authority, which is now the Australian Criminal Intelligence Commission uh, in Sydney, working on Asian organised crime, um, East Coast organised criminal networks, uh, money laundering and, and drug trafficking, which was a fascinating period of time. And uh, I had to spend a, a little bit of a little bit of that time working as a surveillance operative as well, covert physical surveillance. So getting uh, getting up close to some of these people and seeing how they behaved and recording evidence for later use in court. Um, and then I was really fortunate after that to be selected to be the AFP's first counterterrorism liaison officer based in Washington DC. So I was posted over to uh, the United States working out of the Australian Embassy with um, a number of United States agencies, in particular the, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, uh, the Central Intelligence Agency, and a number of others on counterterrorism. And that, that came at a really interesting time because it uh, overlapped the, the second Bali bombing where a number of Australians were killed or injured. Uh, it overlapped our um, involvement in uh, Afghanistan and Iraq uh, from a military perspective, but also from a counterterrorism perspective. So it was a very, very busy time and, and really introduced me to that national that national security space that's so important. I came home from there into um, AFP headquarters in Canberra working on counterterrorism intelligence. 
uh, and then back into essentially back into organised crime as our as the AFP's national coordinator for organised crime. I just have a bit of a chuckle there because I, I always refer, I keep referring to our when I talk about the AFP, and I think that's 28 years of in, of indoctrination. But um, obviously not our anymore; it's theirs. Um, yeah, so working on, on organised crime and. and we were we basically went through a significant change program to um, invest additional resources and focus on organised crime over those sort of few years between uh, 2005-06 up until 2011. Um, for, for obvious reasons, the AFP's focus had been very heavily on national security and, and terrorism for a long period of time, and there had been um, absolutely a bit of a reduction in our, our focus and capabilities on organised crime, and that was starting to hurt the country. So we, we pivoted to um, to balance that out a bit. Um, subsequent to that, I was promoted and um, sent over to Indonesia to work out of the Australian Embassy in Jakarta as the um, AFP's manager for Southeast Asia. So I had responsibility in that role for the AFP's posts in um, Indonesia, Malaysia, uh, the Philippines and Singapore. So I think something that a lot of people don't realise about, about the AFP is that it has um, an international network of police officers based all over the world, um, mostly working out of the Australian embassies or high commissions in those locations. And, and the job of the international network is to, there's probably three or four key priorities. The first one is around joint operational activity in collaboration with local law enforcement. Uh, the second one is the exchange of criminal intelligence to ensure that we are working globally in a joined up way to target uh, criminal networks who are impacting our countries. Uh, there's a representational role there. So you are the Australian government's law enforcement representative in country, and you are there to represent the interests of all the Australian uh, police, police agencies. And then in, in some countries, um, there's a capability development role where, where the Australian government invests significant um, resources and finance in building up local law enforcement agencies to um, ensure rule of law is maintained. And that obviously all of those things are in countries in Australia's national interests. Um, one, of the, one of the philosophies that drove the, the international network and still does is that we, we want to fight crime offshore away from Australia because if we're tackling the problem in Southeast Asia or in South America or in the Middle East or anywhere else, we're preventing a portion of it, at least, from coming to impact on Australia. So I spent uh, three years in Indonesia. Most of my time uh, over there was spent working on counterterrorism, uh, people smuggling, and, and drug trafficking, and a lot of capability development. Uh, we invested a lot of money in the Indonesian National Police to help build their capabilities to deal with those issues. Then when I came home, I uh, was posted to Sydney as the AFP's commander for um, New South Wales or, or Eastern Command, as it's now known. And that was, and then I did that for the next four years. So for that four-year period, I was responsible for the 1,100 AFP members based in New South Wales for all the activities that, that we that the AFP did or does in New South Wales. So counter-terrorism operations, uh, organised crime, uh, protection operations. So when you go through an airport in Australia, you see uniformed police officers, they'll be federal police officers. Uh, we also provide guarding services to, they have done it again. Uh, we also provide guarding services to a number of government facilities like the Garden Island Naval Base in Sydney Government House. So responsibility for, for all of that uh, and, and all the enabling and support services that, that are located in Sydney. And I guess it was probably about 18 months 
Um, so about two and a half years into my time in Sydney, so about 18 months before I finished up, that I I started to think about what my next step might be or should be, and whether that was a, a step to stay within the AFP, um, which would involve me returning to Canberra um, and you know, potential future advancement into an assistant commissioner's role, or was it time for me to take a step out of uh, the AFP and, and go into something that I thought about doing over you know, on numerous occasions throughout my career, and that's taking a step into the private sector. And um, I was lucky enough to get this opportunity, and so and so here I am. And that move to from the pi- public sector to the private sector, you talked a lot about counterterrorism um, and you know protecting Australians. How have you found the alignment from obviously what you're passionate about? You spoke with real passion just then about some of those topics. Have you found that aligning to a role in finance and banking? That's a, uh, that's a great question. And, you know, I, I, would, I have to be honest and say that it, it did cross my mind when I, when I finally made the decision that I was going to, to, to move out of the AFP to the private sector, whether I would find the same level of uh, satisfaction, I suppose, because you're right, there is definitely a, a significant degree of motivation and satisfaction that comes from knowing that you're, you're making a contribution to protecting the country. Uh, and I, that really bore heavily on my, my thinking around where I wanted to end up um, when, I make, when I made that jump into the private sector. So there, was, there were a number of options open to me, uh, but I was determined to do something that I could use the skills and knowledge and experience and, and networks um, that I'd built up over 28 years in, in the AFP and, and continue to use that in a way that would continue to have a beneficial impact for, um, for my community, for my society. It, that sort of thing gets into your blood, certainly did with me, and um, I don't think I'll ever be able to turn that off. I don't want to turn it off, to be honest with you. So I wanted to be able to continue to do that. And um, banking in the finance sector loomed large in my thinking because... Firstly, banking uh, is part of our what, what's known as our critical national infrastructure, and that's a, it's a fancy phrase, but what it essentially means is that people at every level of society rely on a stable banking system to be able to conduct their day-to-day business and to live safely and, and harmoniously. And I know that sounds probably sounds a little dramatic, but if, you, if you've seen some of the countries that I've seen through my policing career or even that you see in the media, um, when you look at failed states or failing states, states that have significant domestic strife uh, or instability, one of the key features of those states is almost invariably they do not have a stable banking or finance system. And that's not a coincidence. If, if you can't rely on the fact that your money and your property are safe, um, you are less likely to behave in a harmonious, uh, law-abiding and stable way. And so banking, uh, helping to protect the Australian banking system uh, was something that definitely appealed to me. Um, as you'd expect over a 28-year career where you're focusing on high-end criminal criminality, uh, I had a fair bit of interaction with the banks and I had views around how the collaboration between banks and law enforcement, but the public sector more broadly, could be improved and needs to be improved. And I thought I could make a contribution to that. Uh, and then there were some, some specific things about NAB that attracted me. Um, one of them was that NAB is a really iconic Australian brand. Uh, it's a really well-regarded financial institution domestically and, and internationally. And I'd had some contact with people at NAB 
and it became apparent to me pretty quickly that that was was on a significant program of change to uplift its technology capabilities, its philosophy and approach to banking, and its relationships with the community. And I, I found that to be quite attractive as a, as a prospect to be, to, be, to be involved in, I suppose. Um, so all of those sort of things came together for me. Um, and, and then the role that I currently have um, became available and um, I was fortunate enough to be to be appointed to it. And uh, I guess, as they say, the rest is history and, and, and here I am. That's great insight. Thanks, Chris. And the tie between the national security of Australia and the way your current role still plays a key role in protecting the interest of Australia, NAB customers and the community is one I hadn't considered in that way. So that was really well um, articulated. In your role as the Executive for Group Investigations and Fraud, what are the functions that you're now responsible for? The first thing I would say is that NAB is, is unique in the Australian context in terms of how we've structured our, uh, for want of a better word, I'm just going to call it our fraud team, but it's a, it's a, it's a much bigger beast than that. Um, and the reason that we're, we're unique is that we have all of the all of the various disciplines that are in any bank to detect, prevent, investigate, uh, remediate fraud. In any other bank in the country, they're kind of split into different functions, different parts of the bank, whereas in there we've concentrated them into one team, which I think is um, a really sensible way of doing business. It's certainly, in my experience and from my observation, generates a lot of efficiencies for us and gives us a level of capability that I don't see replicated um, with my with my peers across the country. So to talk through the, the various teams, there's there's six or seven key teams. And the first, the first I'll sort of walk through them from a almost a value chain or end-to-end -end perspective, but I have my, my fraud uh, detection team. So that's a team who essentially write the rules, the codes, the models, and, and operate the systems that the bank utilises to prevent and detect fraud. So the types of people that are on that team are uh, data scientists, analysts, statisticians, coders, uh, and, and people, IT engineers. So people who, who have deep knowledge, deep understanding of our technologies and how they can be um, utilised to protect our customers, to protect the bank from, from fraud events. Um, then I have my fraud operations team. Um, now the fraud operations team are the people who are, who are they, our front line, I guess, our front line response to fraud in the bank. A, a great way of imagining them is the fraud detection team writes systems and rules and models. Those, those rules and models, uh, if they see a suspicious event or transaction, will generate an alert, and the alert will go to my fraud operations team to be assessed, triaged, and, and responded to. And, and that response could range from um, reviewing it and then dis discounting it. It could be that we block a transaction. It could be that we freeze an account or a credit card. Uh, it could be that we contact the customer by phone or via SMS or via email. It all depends on the, on the situation, but the fraud operations team are the front line in that space. They're a large team and, and you would expect them to be a large team given the, the responsibilities that they have. Um, I then have my group investigations team. So the group investigations team are responsible for the high-end serious crime investigations um, involving either internal, internal misconduct where we see bankers who engage in behaviour that is um, either criminal or um, in significant breach, serious breach of NAB's policies, 
uh, and they also investigate external fraud, whether the value of that fraud is over a, is over a certain level. These are these are specialist investigators, so um, I, I I can relate very strongly with that team because that's kind of my 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 primary skill set and background. Um, we've invested significantly in that team over the last three years to lift its capabilities. To be honest with you, we've invested significantly across the entire fraud across the entire fraud team. Um, but the investigation team in particular has uh, has been a real focus of ours because we weren't happy with our our capabilities in that space, you know, back three years ago. Um, then there's the financial crime investigations team. So that's another team of specialist investigators, and their role is to investigate financial crime. And when we talk about financial crime, where is where that's different to what the group investigations team is? That from a financial crime perspective. We're really looking at our customers and their interactions with NAB, and they investigate whether a customer may be using NAB's system or processes, accounts, services to commit um, criminal acts related to things like money laundering, child exploitation, human trafficking, drug trafficking, tax evasion, any type of financial crimes. So generally crimes against um, against the government in many respects, although child exploitation is obviously and human trafficking is human impact there as well. Um, terrorism financing, all of that sort of all of that sort of activity. Um, and then I have an anti-bribery and corruption team. We're the only bank in Australia that has a dedicated anti-bribery and corruption team. And that team's role is to give life to the NAB Group's bribery and corruption policy and to provide a single point of um, of excellence to give effect to the government's foreign bribery and corruption um, legislation as well. So we have a dedicated team looking at that from a policy, education, awareness, detection um, and, and enforcement perspective within the bank. And last but absolutely not least, I have a team of um, digital forensics specialists. They are, the, again, we have the only uh, NATA accredited digital forensics laboratory in, um, in the Australian banking industry. Our people are all NATA accredited, uh, which means that they can give evidence in court um, if required. And they're really responsible for all of the e-discovery, um, data extraction and analysis in support of notices to produce from law enforcement, um, legal subpoenas in support of legal matters, and, and of course, the investigations that my group investigations and financial crime investigations teams um, perform. So I guess the picture I'm painting there, I hope, is that we, ha we have a comprehensive end-to-end uh, -end value chain team arrangement with all of our fraud and financial crime investigations disciplines in, under, the one, under the one roof and working together. When you cast your eyes outside of what's happening just for NAB and consider what's happening in the fraud environment internationally and domestically, can you just share what you're seeing? Yeah, it's um, it's become it's a bit of a cliche, I think, because typically when people are asked that sort of question, um, one of the normal responses, and I'm, I'm going to use it now because it's relevant, but I'm not going to I'm not going to um, focus on it too much because I think we just take it as, as read. But um, digitisation and globalisation uh, have fundamentally changed the, the world over the last sort of 10, 15, uh, 20 years. The, and the other piece, I suppose, which is not so relevant during this era of COVID, but is the ability to move, for people to move very quickly anywhere, pretty much anywhere around the world, you know, cheap, fast, relatively cheap and fast international, international travel. 
but um, digitisation and technology and globalisation have changed, um, certainly changed the criminal environment. They've changed the financial environment, financial sector, they've changed banking, and they've changed the criminal environment as well. Um, in answering in answering that that question, I might I might just backtrack a bit and and reflect a bit on my uh, policing career and some of the changes that we saw occur, occur over my 28 years. And when I first started in policing, um, drug trafficking, for example, was, was very much a, uh, a group-based activity. So you would have, for example, a um, particular ethnic group of, of individuals who would focus on a particular commodity uh, and they would be responsible, let's say heroin, they would be responsible, uh, that one group of people would engage in the procurement of that heroin overseas, the shipment and the concealment and shipment of that heroin into Australia, the distribution of the heroin out to customers, the collection of the proceeds of the activity and the laundering of those funds would all be done by, by a single criminal group with links overseas, but, um, but, but really just around the, the, the links were around the commercial arrangements for procuring the, the, the commodity, the drugs. What's changed significantly in the last several years is the specialisation and the globalisation uh, and the network, the networking of, of criminal groups. So you don't see those defined um, ethnic groupings or, or, or criminal groupings anymore. You see cross-pollination, so you'll see outlaw motorcycle gangs, so the Hells Angels and the Banditos and the Rebels working with Vietnamese organised crime, Chinese organised crime, Middle Eastern organised crime to engage in every level of that criminal continuum. Um, we have specialist money laundering crime groups that are transnational and they are they don't engage in any of the predicate crimes, so they don't engage in the drug trafficking or the firearms trafficking. They, their sole role is to assist criminal groups to move the proceeds of crime or the instruments of crime around the world undetected. Um, these groups are so professional that they offer insurance for their customers so that if a cash, if a cash shipment is detected and seized by law enforcement, um, the money laundering group will cover the loss. Um, there's commissions paid. So it's a, it, it is big transnational business and highly specialised. So I, I guess it's important to get that mindset in that, that the criminal environment has fundamentally changed and that's having an impact on us in a banking, from a banking perspective, um, when it comes to fraud, when it comes to money laundering, uh, child exploitation, and detecting those types of behaviour. Um, so what, what's changed for, for, for us is that, you know, we still see, I'm sort of putting this in inverted commas, we still see the traditional types of fraud where um, criminals will, you'll have loan actors or small groups of people who, who will try and steal your, your mail out of your letterbox and use your, you know, your and try and, and, and do that sort of thing. And, and you still see credit card skimming events. You'll still see card, counterfeit cards and that sort of thing. That still happens. But what's increasingly becoming the major problem for financial institutions from a fraud perspective um, globally is the entry of the same transnational organised crime groups that are that are historically responsible for things like drug trafficking, human trafficking, firearms, money laundering. Those same groups are now heavily invested in fraud uh, and, and targeting both financial institutions and financial institutions customers for fraud and scam, um, fraud and scam campaigns. 
that's become that's a real challenge for so I guess again stepping back, I don't think anyone in law enforcement anywhere in the country would say that that they are on top of um, or winning or or in any way, shape or form close to defeating transnational organised crime efforts to generate revenue out of trafficking in illicit commodities. Um, those same group, and the reason for that is that those groups are they're highly agile. They're incredibly well resourced from a financial and a skills and knowledge capacity. They aren't restricted by their very nature. They aren't restricted by the by legislation or by jurisdictional boundaries between countries or between states. And they're highly, highly skilled at identifying vulnerabilities in systems and processes and laws that they can then exploit to generate to generate revenue. And they exist for one thing only, and that's to generate profit from their activities. And they spend every moment of every day working on the next scheme to do that. Whereas we have lots of things that we need to do. We are restricted by laws and legislation and jurisdictional boundaries and limitations around uh, data sharing and privacy. And these are all appropriate, absolutely appropriate things. That's what makes us different from criminal groups. You know, we operate in a civil society, we operate in, in accordance with laws and we must continue to do that. But it does mean that we, we, we can be quite vulnerable at times to these organised crime groups once they turn their attention to us. And that's what's happening, and that's what's happening right now. How is, that, how is that manifesting itself? Um, I think one of the primary ways it's manifesting itself in Australia, and this is when I talk to peers around the world, they're saying the same thing. There's been a real pivot from fraud that targets the bank, um, so the bank system, people trying to get into banking systems to steal money, to fraud targeting customers, and we call that predominantly scams. And across the world, we're seeing a, a very, very significant shift to scam typology, so things like investment scams, business email compromise, romance and friendship scams, puppy scams in places like, you know, we've seen those here in Australia, um, goods, not, goods that you've purchased and they never turn up, um, phishing campaigns, all of that sort of thing has gone um, exponentially increased over the last couple of years. It was happening before COVID, but COVID certainly uh, accelerated it. And the, the level that, that this is at now, I, I don't think anyone in the industry who's involved in the fraud, in the fraud space like, like I am, and no one sees that changing anytime soon. Yeah, some great points. Thanks, Chris. And just made me reflect on a recent podcast with Abigail Bradshaw, who's the head of the Australian Cybersecurity Centre, and David West from NAB's Cyber Defence Team that we had on cybersecurity. And Abigail Bradshaw said... The organised crime gangs have no empathy. So we really can't expect them to be operating as good global citizens. They don't play by the rules. They're looking to take advantage of every single loophole and opportunity that they can. And I think to your other point, the move uh, into the world of being digital, I think there's definitely a shift in the way that individuals or businesses can now be targeted that has changed and I think our thinking needs to change with it as well. So previously we'd be in a position where there might be kind of geographical components to um, shield us from um, from many types of crime, uh, particularly where it comes to fraud or scams and uh, some of those layers have now been taken away because geography no longer plays a role in whether someone is targeted 
from a, a criminal or through a scam. And now in the digital age, anyone who has a digital device that's connected to the internet is just as likely as anybody else in the world to be targeted and potentially to fall victim uh, to these types of fraud and scams as well. If these organised crime gangs are really evolving uh, and increasing in their threat, how has NAB's detection had to evolve in response to this new t- type of attack? Yeah, look, um, I'll answer that in a sec, but uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a second. But um, I wanted to hit on a couple of points you made there, just to just to emphasise on my thing, Tara, that you you are completely. Or Abigail was completely correct. Uh, these these groups absolutely have no empathy, and the the means by which they target their victims, um, particularly for some of these some of these scams like like friendship scams and romance scams, they are utterly ruthless, and there is literally no concern for the for the victim at the other end. Um, they will they will lead these people on and and, and groom them in the, in the exact same way that a child um, a child molester will groom a child so that they can exploit them. That's what these people do. And there is no one should be under any illusion about how ruthless these, these folks are prepared to be. And then on top of that, to your other point, um, the, the digitisation of society, the technologies that we have available to us now, you, you, you're correct. There's very little um, delay to market for the, for the latest fraud or scam scheme. Once it's devised, it can be rolled out um, and implemented almost immediately. The technology that we have available to our, to society now gives criminals access to enormous numbers of victims. In, you know, even when maybe 20, 30 years ago, they just couldn't access that amount of that number of victims to try their latest scheme on. And the anonymity that technology provides makes it very, very difficult for the victim at the other end of that chain to actually determine or with any degree of reliability whether the person that they're talking to about the latest cryptocurrency um, opportunity or um, who the person who's purporting to be their, their newest best friend is actually who they, who they say they are. So it's, it's a very, very tough environment. What are we, what are we doing about it? Good question. Um, we obviously have to, we have to keep going with our normal, uh, not normal, our traditional forms of, of fraud detection and prevention. So there's a range of things we do around um, around the data that's generated uh, through transaction activity and and through our knowledge of our customers relate and their relationships with us. So we we try to build rules and models around that knowledge that identify unusual activity. And if we see unusual activity, we'll respond to that and do what we do do the best job we can do to try and protect the customer from um, from being victimised. But we're also um, we're trying to use technology to our advantage as well. So um, we're, we're leaning heavily into innovative approaches uh, in, in the use of technology. Things like device behavioural biometrics. So uh, what I mean by that is um, understanding how our legitimate customers utilise the devices that they um, that they use to interact with with NAB and to transact on NAB's services and systems. And then building um, the capability to understand when that behaviour looks different, and then react, and then and then reacting accordingly to protect the to protect the customer. Um, another key point, 
of difference, I think, for NAB and one that I, I believe we've only really just begun to, um, to harness is that ability to share information between the public and private sector. And I guess this is, this is something that I'm really passionate, really, really passionate about. Um, law enforcement, for example, and banking have always come together when they need to for a specific operational purpose. Now, back in you know, 20 years ago, if there was an armed robbery at a bank, the bank would work very closely with law enforcement to ensure that law enforcement had the information that they needed um, to apprehend the offenders, and police would work closely with the bank to make sure the bank staff were looked after and that we, we didn't get re-victimised again. Um, but once that investigation was completed, um, the parties would go their separate ways and probably never speak to each other again. And the same thing happens in the in the digital world and in, in the fraud space. You know, when we when we have um, some, you know, when my group investigations team are investigating a identity crime syndicate who are targeting that customers, we work really closely with the police to um, share intelligence and information to facilitate that group being apprehended and and the threat removed. But once that investigation is complete, we, we go back to our normal roles and um, we don't we don't get that broader strategic benefit out of that relationship. So I've thought I've, I've always thought um, even before I came to NAB, and it's been, and that and that belief has solidified over the last three years. We need to elevate that relationship between um, the law enforcement community and uh, or the public sector community and the private sector to a strategic level. There has to be a level of information and intelligence exchange that enables both sides of that equation, the public and the private sector, to better protect the community and, and our customers. And I'll give you a, I'll give you an example that probably illustrates my the, the thinking in that space. As a bank, we invest enormous effort and resources in building, um, looking at our data and reading uh, media reports and, and any other intelligence that we can um, acquire from outside the bank to understand what people who are engaged in child exploitation, what they do, um, what their behaviour patterns are like and how that might be reflected in their transacting with the bank. And we then use our, our um, data scientists, our coders to generate detection rules and models to help us potentially um, detect people engaged in child exploitation, which we then um, we, we investigate those and, and we report them appropriately to the government as we need to do. But as you'd appreciate, we, we literally billions of transactions occurring a year um, by over nine by nine to 10 million customers. It really is looking like looking for a needle in a haystack, in a field full of haystacks, trying to find that, that nugget of, you know, who is the bad, who is the bad person. On the other side of that equation, you have law enforcement who have much more targeted pointed information around people of interest, um, who, if that information is shared with the bank, we can actually um, use our, our data analysis capabilities more in a more focused way on those specific individuals who, who perhaps might be, might be NAB customers. And that's going to be a much more efficient response. It will give law enforcement much more focused and actionable information and it will help us protect our bank and our customers and our shareholders from having to have those types of customers on our books who, I can assure you, NAB does not want those people as, as customers. So now that's just one crime typology, child exploitation. If we could implement that sort of strategic exchange of intelligence and information across all crime typologies, suddenly we begin to make, to make banking in Australia an extremely hostile environment for organised crime groups. 
And the, the, the one guaranteed strategy to really do some harm to these individuals, to individual criminals and organised crime groups, is to take the profit out of the, out of the work. If you can take their assets, take the profit out, they will go somewhere else. And, and that's the outcome that we should be trying to achieve. Yeah, I love it. You know, finding that tipping point, what makes a difference for them um, and focusing on that. And just on that point around that collaboration, which sounds like a great approach and you referenced that that was one of the drivers from moving from um, public to private sector. How are you bringing your colleagues or your peers across the banking industry with you? Um, great question. And one of the, I didn't expect this when I came across to, to NAB, but one of the really gratifying um, observations I would, I would have is that there's a really close partnership. Um, yes, we're competitors, um, but, but, but on a fraud basis and a financial crime basis, we don't compete with each other at all. So across the banking sector and the financial services sector, we work really closely with each other to try and make it as difficult as possible for the, for the crooks to, um, to profit from their activities. I might just give you um, maybe two or three examples around that. So there's, a, there's an organisation called the Australian Financial Crimes Exchange. Um, that's a not-for-profit company that was established by uh, the, big, the, the big four banks, um, with obviously NAB being one of those founding members. And the, and the sole purpose of the um, AFCX is to allow the banks to share fraud data in, in a series of catalogues that are generally updated on an hourly basis. So that if there are criminals who, for example, are who are targeting NAB or our customers for, for fraud and they're using a particular type of card, we share that data with the other banks so that they can place that same data into their detection systems and they don't get victimised by the same by the same person. It's a bit more complicated than that, uh, and I'm not a technology person, but it, it, it is a really effective way of ensuring that we are sharing key data that can inform our detection rules and systems across industry. Uh, and so we help, again, make that environment more hostile. Um, another place that we come together and collaborate is through the uh, Austrac Fintel Alliance. Austrac do an amazing job in, um, in bringing law enforcement and the financial sector together as a, as a conglomerate um, to work on key projects around things like terrorism financing and money laundering. Um, and to find ways of, to help us share intelligence at that operational at that operational level, um, and then there's, there's just a, honestly there's a litany of other um, bilateral or, or um, multilateral engagements where we come together to share information, share experience, best practice, technology. Um, so I talked earlier about our focus on um, device behavioural uh, biometrics. Um, We've been at the forefront of, of leading that technology, the rollout of that technology in Australia. And in part, I think, because of our approach to it and the success that we've experienced, we're starting to see other financial institutions in the country implement similar similar technology. So, you know, as I say, um, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. So we're, we're happy to have that happen. Leading the pack. I love it. And knowledge sharing is just so key uh, when it comes to, you know, it's, crimes and financial crimes. and I mean, you would know from your background, but knowledge and information is key to, you know, defending against criminal activity. That's completely correct. It's, 
sense the solution. So there's, there's you know, police officer that I know, uh, Matt Craft, who's the superintendent in charge of the cybercrime squad in New South Wales Police, says something which is quite correct, and that is that we're never going to arrest our way out of this problem. There is just so many people willing to commit this crime, this type of criminal um, criminality, fraud and, and scams and financial crime. We don't have enough jail cells or enough police officers or enough sets of handcuffs to lock all of them up. Um, and, and frankly, we shouldn't be trying to because it, it, it's, it's, it is the impossible task. But what we can do is prevent a lot more activity happening. And that's where our, our, our efforts collectively need to be is, is shifting the dial from being in a response investigations um, setting to being in a prevention and deterrence and education setting. And if you get that right, getting that prevention piece right means that much less adverse activity, much less criminal offending, much less victimisation occurs. Um, we're only at the start of that journey, but, but to your point, sharing information, sharing experience is the number one way we can do that in, in an efficient and an effective manner. And, you know, I think here in Australia, we have got, when I compare what we do at a public private sector, strategic public private sector level to what exists in the United States and, uh, and, the, and the UK, we've got a long way to go, but um, I, I can honestly say that the signs over the past 12 months are really, really encouraging that we're, we're starting to get it and we're heading that way. And, and again, I'll reflect back on my law enforcement experience. Oftentimes it takes a while for Australia, Team Australia, to realise that it has to act in a different way. But once we do realise, we move really, our, our pace to change is really, really quick. So I'm, 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 I'm quite encouraged that we, we, we're starting to get it right. Yeah, it is really encouraging because it can feel a bit deflating hearing about all the criminal activities that occur and, you know, the exchange of finances and the impacts on individuals. So it's really encouraging to hear so much good work that is happening. And I, I think I've heard the stop the money, stop the crime before, and that seems like a really sensible a slogan or motto. Um, before we wrap up, Chris, we've really covered and I think – I think NAB customers and the community can feel really assured about NAB security posture and the activities that we're undertaking to make sure that the bank and our customers' money and information is safe, which is so great. I know a lot of fraud and scam typologies do have a, re a much greater customer impact though. So I just wanted to see if you could share just maybe a couple of those types of typologies that you're seeing that have significant customer impacts and maybe just a couple of things that our listeners might be able to keep in mind when they're considering how these might impact them. Yeah, look, um, I'll talk about a couple of, of relatively recent incidents because I think when you talk about something that's happened quite contemporaneously, it makes it a bit more real. Um, obviously, I won't talk about specific customers' identities, but um, but the, the events that I'll, I'll, I'll refer to are... Uh, 100% um, real-life events. So recently we had a uh, significant business email compromise uh, fraud or scam event. Now, I, don't, uh, I won't go into the mechanics too much of a business email compromise, but essentially it is when a person is tricked through various means into, into sending funds that they intend to go to legitimate person A to illegitimate slash fraudster person B. Um, in, in this particular case, um, we had a, a customer who was 
sent, who was looking to send uh, around $2.4 million to a investment fund um, in, in Australia. And then that money was going to be sent overseas for, for some investments. Someone hacked, someone hacked into um, the investment fund in Australia's email server and um, obviously looked through those emails, saw that they were engaging in negotiations with our customer around, um, around the $2.4 million. And then by virtue of the fact they were, that they had hacked into the email server, they were able to send an email to our customer changing the account details for him um, to send the $2.4 million to. And unfortunately, um, he didn't realise that that had occurred and he sent the $2.4 million and the money was, uh, was stolen. Fortunately, in this particular case, we were able to... A couple of things that worked in the customer's favour in this particular case. Uh, firstly, the investment fund in Australia were, were pretty switched on and realised quickly that the money that they were expecting to arrive in their account hadn't arrived, so that's number one. Number two, they contacted our customer and us and NAB very quickly to raise the alarm. And because of that, um, my fraud team was able to swing into action and were able to um, ascertain where the $2.4 million had gone and were able to freeze most of it in the recipient bank uh, bank's account and, and recover that money within a week for our customer. Now, we didn't recover all of it, and, and that's often the case that you don't recover all of it. But it was, a, you know, in the overall scheme of things, a, a, at face value, a fairly um, simple, not probably not simple from the fraudster's perspective because there would have been a lot of work gone that they would have gone through to hack into the investment fund's email servers. But at the end of the day, a very simple and potentially high gain fraud for, for what is essentially minimal effort. I think I think key lesson, a couple of lessons to come out of that that one, Tara, and this would apply to all business email compromise, is if, if an account, if, you, if, if a payment account inexplicably changes, if you get instructions to change the payment account um, from what you would normally pay money to, or even if, uh, so this case is an interesting one because our customer hadn't had previous involvement with this investment fund, and the investment fund is an entirely legitimate company, and they had already given our customer payment details and then they changed. So if you see those sorts of things happening, the strongest advice I could give you in those circumstances is do not send any money until you have actually spoken to someone from the company that wants, that wants your money that you need to pay and confirm the account details. Um, unfortunately, the customer didn't do that in, in this case. If he had, we probably wouldn't have had the incident occur. So that's, that's number one. Number two, check to see that the funds have arrived after you hit send uh, and, and keep checking until you've got that confirmation. And the reason that that's important is our opportunity to recover funds declines precipitously the more time that goes by between when the funds are, are stolen and when the actual theft of the funds is discovered. Um, and I, mean, I don't want to alarm people, but in the digital environment that we operate in, anything more than a few hours and the likelihood of being able to recover the money is almost zero because these these groups who engage in this activity are highly organised, they're quite sophisticated and, and typically what will happen is the money will be stolen from the customer, will go to a number of different uh, Australian financial institution accounts um, domestically and then very quickly the money will disappear out to um, 
foreign banks overseas and the recovery prospects once that happens are, are almost zero. But that's, that, and, and I raised that particular thought, I mean, and you know this, Tara, because of where you work, that business email compromises um, by, by value are the most significant scam threat for, for NAB customers. Um, so they and they're on the rise, and that's that's a global that's a global trend. So um, you know, and it's a, and the other thing is it's quite an easy one to protect yourself from if you just ask questions and don't assume, don't make assumptions. So that that's probably that one. And then if you like, I can probably talk about a um, a remote access scam. But look, I think um, another one that's you know by by volume, so by number of events, is the most significant. Um, scam problem that, that we're seeing in Australia at the moment is, is what we call uh, remote access scams. And they're called remote access scams because the scammer, or the fraudster, gets access to the customer's um, accounts via remote access. So via, uh, typically via uh, installing a, um, an application on the customer's home computer or, or you know, device. Um, so a good example of one that we had recently, uh, and I'm going to use this one because we had a win, and it's always good to celebrate your wins. Uh, we had a customer who was contacted by a um, person purporting to be her internet service provider, and um, the purpose of the contact allegedly was to let the customer know that there was a problem with her, uh, her, her internet service and they needed to remote access into her computer to help her fix the problem. Um, she uh, she got a, a prompt pop up on her email, a link which she clicked on, which then uh, activated an application which allowed the, the scammer to um, have full access to her computer. And then during the course of that interaction, uh, the scammer stayed on the phone with her, on her mobile phone, and talked her through a range of different things, including advising her that there looked to be a problem with her bank accounts and it appeared that she had received some money that she wasn't entitled to and could get in trouble for it, but that he could help her fix that problem if she gave him access. So um, another link, another uh, click on the link, an application, and the customer entered her, her details into um, what looked like a NAB internet banking um, uh, entry point. The um, scammer then used that information to go in and have a look at her accounts, how much money she had in her accounts, um, what her recent transactions were and all that sort of thing. Now, fortunately, um, and, and then he started coaching her through how to send money to um, accounts, to the accounts that he wanted to send money to. Now, fortunately, in this case, we have um, some, some detection capabilities deployed that um, picked up that the customer's interaction with her device didn't look like her normal interaction. And the reason it didn't look like her normal interaction was because she was stressed and a bit confused and um, her, so her profile looked a bit different. That, that triggered an alert and our, um, one of our fraud advisors made direct contact with the customer on her landline phone. So then we had a situation where we had um, the scammer talking to the customer on her mobile phone at the same time as the NAB fraud advisor was trying to talk to the customer on her landline phone and convince her that she was actually being um, very close to being the victim of the scam. Um, fortunately, in, in this case, um, the NAB fraud advisor was able to convince the customer that they were about to be uh, ripped off. Um, that's despite the scammer trying to convince the customer that the NAB fraud advisor was in fact the scammer. <laughs> um, but in, in any event, the customer hung up the phone on the scammer, closed down her internet sessions, um, 
we were able to work with her really quickly to secure her account, issue her with new pass, with new account login details, uh, and provided her with a bunch of education around how to avoid falling victim to that sort of scam in future and what that looks like. And um, she didn't lose any money, but it was a close thing. And you know, unfortunately, that type of scam uh, activity is really, really common. Um, we we get around Australia there are, there are thousands of those occurring every single day. I imagine that on this podcast, listening to this podcast, there would there would be very few people who haven't received a phone call or a text message from either people purporting to be from Optus, Telstra, the ATO, the AFP, or some other enforcement agency. Um, and every single one of those is about this. This is about you clicking on a link and then giving that person, unbeknownst to you, giving that person access to your device. Um, my advice is, if you don't know, if you're not sure, don't click on anything. Get advice. Yeah, absolutely. We're always talking about not responding to push notifications. So if you receive something, don't click links, don't download programs, don't speak to anybody. If there's uncertainty or it's an unsolicited call or a message, hang up, call on a known or publicly listed number and definitely never allow anyone to download any programs onto your computer that you're, you haven't agreed or contacted them initially to set up that process so some great examples and, and great news. I, I, I can imagine in both of those instances, the customers would have been so happy um, that with NAB's response and the ability to either stop that money from being sent initially or to recover that money after it's been sent. But I know that's not always the case. Unfortunately, many um, customers are left without recovery and therefore at a loss. So um, Chris, I, I will share with the listeners um, some articles around some of these typologies. Our very first podcast episode was actually on business email compromise because we do see this as being one of the biggest security and financial threats for Australian businesses at the moment and we really want people to consider how they can start operating outside of emails when it comes to sharing account details and re requesting money to be sent. So that's uh, the first podcast that we did, Business Email Compromise, but we do have some other great articles on nab.com.au security about remote access, phone scams, you mentioned before puppy scams, a whole range of uh, insights on how do people can stay safe um, and, and protect their money and, and their personal data. So, Chris, thanks so much for your time. This has been an excellent chat. I really appreciate you've been very generous um, with sharing your journey through law enforcement and, and into NAB, and we are all the better uh, for having you on board. So maybe we can touch base in a year and you can tell us, you know, how you're progressing all of these, um, you know, new technologies and these relationships with law enforcement in the future. Anytime you want me back, um, Tara, I'm more than happy to do so. And, um, you know, thanks for the opportunity and hopefully hopefully the, uh, the listeners get something out of it. Thank you. Yeah, great. Thanks, Chris. Well, what a great episode that was. So interesting to hear from Chris Sheehan and all of his experience and knowledge in what's happening in the world of fraud and scams and how we can stay safe from those different threats that are out there. So for anyone that did want to find more information, just head to nab.com.au security. That's our one-stop shop for all of our scam and fraud education and awareness activities. We've got articles, alerts, videos, 
training, um, whatever you need for your family, for yourself, for your business, uh, it's all available there on nab.com.au security. So absolutely a one-stop shop for education. Uh, there's also monthly webinar sessions that are run so people can join our li- our teams live, um, run through a presentation and also be able to ask questions from the experts as well. So a really great episode, so much uh, in that. Uh, it's been a pleasure to speak with Chris. Uh, listeners, thanks so much for joining us today. We will see you again next month. And in the meantime, please take care and stay safe.